Well, good morning. Glad you guys are here. I hope you've survived from last week. Um, last week was like drinking from a fire hose. We covered a whole lot of material, and I, I think this week's going to be a little less uh, heavy and deep and long. Uh, we're just going to cover chapter eight, but um, I want to I want to read uh, two passages from the book of Hebrews: one from the end, one from the beginning. And I think they help us understand what, what's the purpose of this, this letter. Um, as, the more I study it, uh, the more I have to wrestle with, why is all this stuff here? Why, why is all this um, talk about priests and sacrifices and tabernacle? And why is that in the Bible? And why do I have to care about it? When I live in the 21st century, what's the point of all this? And so as I was just looking through the book over the, the last week, here's what jumps out at me. In the, the very last chapter of the book, chapter 13, verse 22, this is how he ends it. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. So how does he describe the last 13 chapters? It's a word of exhortation. There are those who think this is actually a sermon and not a letter. It's a letter by virtue of the fact that it got disseminated around uh, to various congregations living outside of Israel. But it's a word of exhortation. It's, it's in the form of almost a sermon. So that's kind of the, what is it? What is this book called Hebrews? Well, it's a, it's a word of ex- or exhortation. Well, if you go all the way back to the beginning, it kind of gives us the why. In chapter two, uh, let's see, verse five. He says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. That's the the why. He's writing these people to exhort them about what? The world to come. And that gives this book a whole lot of context when we start thinking about, okay, what's all this talk about? Tabernacle, priesthood, uh, the holy of holies, because we're going to get into that in chapter 8 and then 9 and 10. It's all about the future. It's a glimpse into the things that God has in store for not just these people as Jewish Christians, but also for us as Gentile Christians. There is a future coming. This book is all about the future. When we get to chapter 11 and that great hall of faith where it takes all of these patriarchs and it talks about their faith, their faith is in the future. Their their faith is in the hope. That, that word hope is all over this book. So it's, what are you hoping for? What is your hope in? So hopefully that will give us some context as we move into these next few chapters. So let me pray for us and then we're gonna jump into chapter eight. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this incredible book. Uh, it's deep, it's rich, it's difficult to understand, but I pray that this morning we would read it uh, with eyes wide open, that we, we would read it and allow your Holy Spirit to make it clear to us. Give me clarity, Father, as I present this information that it would be your words and not mine and that we would hear from you this morning and we would understand that you have an incredible future planned out for your people and we can hope in that. And we pray all this in Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, so chapter eight, here's how it opens up. He's covered a lot of territory. Last week, again, was like drinking from a fire hose, but here's what he says in chapter eight, verse one. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. That should tell you he's about to clarify why he has said everything he said to this point forward. The point in what I've said, and we're probably all going, yeah, I'm waiting for you to get there. What's your point? 
We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So everything we looked at last week, as, as difficult as it might have been to understand, comprehend, take in, this is the point. We have such a high priest. Now that leads us back to where we ended last week with the same phrase, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. That was the point of last week, and it's going to be the point as we move forward. This whole idea of Jesus' priesthood is huge. It's critical. And he gives us here a description. He says, such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So what I want to do to get started is to unpack what those words mean. We're familiar with almost all those words. We, we kind of know what holy means. We may not fully understand what does it mean for him to be unstained. So there's meaning behind every one of these descriptive words that he uses. So what is he saying are the qualifications for a high priest, a better high priest, the right kind of high priest? Now, remember, these people are Jews who accepted Jesus as their Messiah. They're thinking about going back to Judaism because this Messiah has not shown up the way they expected, and they're wanting to go back and then wait for the real Messiah to show up. That's basically what they're being tempted to do. The author is trying to get them to keep them from doing that. So he gives them a description of kind of the criteria for a better high priest. And you got to remember, these are Jews, and they're very familiar with the priesthood, especially the high priesthood. So here he goes. He says, he's got to be holy. Now, that's, that's like a duh, right? You know, well, of course, he's got to be holy. If he's going to be high priest, he's got to be holy. But the word really is interesting. It's, it's not hagios. It's not the word normally used for holiness. It's hosios. It's a different word. And it really means devout. He's devout. Well, again, that's kind of like, yeah, he ought to be devout. If you're going to be a priest, be devout. Uh, be devoted to your calling. But remember, he's speaking about the better high priest. He's speaking of Jesus. This is how God sees Jesus. He's devout. My son is devout. Could God say this about any other high priest that ever lived? No. And we'll look at that more closely in just a second. You got to keep the context. Remember we said last week, don't forget the fact that he's writing to Jews. These Jews know the history of the high priesthood. They know the history of the priesthood, and it's not a pretty picture. So he says, my high priest, the better high priest, Jesus Christ is holy. He's devout. He's fully devoted to his calling. No other high priest who ever lived from Aaron on down was ever fully devoted to his calling. They were always distracted. They were always tempted. Why? Because they were men and they were sinful. But this guy, this better high priest, Jesus Christ, the, the one that they're about to turn their back on, is fully devoted to his calling as high priest. Look what it says in John 6.38. This is Jesus. I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. There is no priest that ever lived, no high priest who ever was appointed who could say that. They all wanted to do their own will because they're sinners. It doesn't mean that they didn't try to be devoted. They just couldn't carry it off. But Jesus says, this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of all those he has given me, but that I should raise them up at the last day. Notice his emphasis on what? The future. What's to come. 
Jesus was always focused on the future. Jesus was always focused on the will of God and the complete will of God isn't just his coming. It's not just his ascension, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. It's his return when all things get culminated. He says this as well. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Mitchell covered this two weeks ago. This, this idea that Jesus on the night that he was going to be betrayed was in the garden and he prayed this prayer. And it, it's, it's that, this idea that not my will, your will. His flesh, his humanity was saying, I really don't want to experience everything that's coming. It's gonna be tough. It's gonna be difficult. It's gonna be painful. I'm gonna be rejected, not just by men, but by you. And I would rather not go through that, but not my will, but yours. See, this, this high priest is fully devoted. Fully devoted to what? The will of God Almighty. No high priest has ever lived who could say that. And that's what sets Jesus apart. Well, secondly, not only is he holy, he's innocent. And that word innocent has to do with free from guilt. He has no guilt. Can you imagine living free from guilt? I think I've maybe experienced it in a few brief passing moments in my life, but for the most part, I live with a sense of guilt all the time because I continually sin. It doesn't matter how hard I try, I fall into sin. Less so than probably when I was younger, but it still happens. Guilt is a necessary part of our lives. It's not something we enjoy, it's not something we like, but see, Jesus Christ didn't struggle with guilt because he was guiltless. There's no reason to ever suspect him of guilt. If you saw the high priest, you knew he was a man. You, you knew that he was flawed just like you. He may have dressed better. He may have had on the priestly robes, but you knew he was a man, which made you doubt his effectiveness. Yes, he had all the trappings. He had the title. He had the role, but he was no better than you. But see, Jesus was free from guilt. No reason to ever suspect He's sinless in every way, motivation, action. He never did anything selfishly or sinfully, and that left him free from guilt. And you can't say that of any other high priest. So again, think about why is the author using these words to describe Jesus, the high priest? He's in essence saying, you wanna go back to a system by which you will have to have your sins mediated by men who can't say this and this can't be described of them. Why would you do that? This is how others saw Jesus. Now this, this is fascinating to me because when Jesus came, not everybody liked him and not everybody accepted him, but nobody could find fault in him. They tried, but they couldn't find fault. Some said he was crazy. Some said he was a drunkard. Some said he, was, he hung around with tax collectors and, and he did and prostitutes. And that was true, but they couldn't find any guilt in him because there was none to find, which frustrated the Jewish religious leaders beyond belief. See, Pilate himself at the trial of Jesus went outside again, said to the people, I'm going to bring him out to you now, speaking of Jesus, but understand clearly, I find him not guilty. This happens twice. Who's brought him? The religious leaders, the high priest, the Sanhedrin, and they have brought him and thrown all kinds of accusations against him. And Pilate, a Roman, 
who's got nothing to lose. He's got no love affair for Jesus. He doesn't know him from Adam. And he says, I can't find any guilt. Your accusations have all fallen short. There's no guilt. He shouldn't be crucified. He shouldn't be executed because he's guiltless. And it's interesting that those same chief priests and scribes and Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the Jews brought people to testify falsely and they couldn't even get that to work. They couldn't even get their story straight. Listen to what it says. The chief priests, the whole Sanhedrin were seeking false testimony against Jesus in order to put him to death, but they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. They tried their hardest to find any kind of a lie that they could concoct that would accuse him and nothing would work. Why? Because he's guiltless. Again, why this is important is because they're getting ready to go back to a system ruled over by high priests who are men who are what? Guilty, sinful, not devout. And you think that's going to take care of your problem? No, it's already been taken care of. Thirdly, he's unstained. What does that mean? It, it means he is pure, completely undefiled by sin, completely unstained by sin. Is any other man, any other priest, any other pastor able to say that about himself? No. See, we talked about this idea of ceremonial purification last week. Every high priest, before he could go into the Holy of Holies and offer atonement for the people, had to first purify himself. He had to be ceremonially purified before he could enter into the presence of God and offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. But see, Jesus didn't need that. He's perfectly purified all the time. He never gets defiled by sin. He, he is never guilty, so he is always sinless. He's the unblemished lamb of God all the time, every day, 24-7, 365 days a year. He is unblemished, pure, inwardly, not just outwardly. You know, Jesus, I brought this up last week, but Jesus was constantly debating with the Pharisees and he called them some pretty interesting things. He called them whitewashed tombs. The Jews were known for painting their tombs, the outside of the tombs and making them immaculate. But what's the problem? On the inside, there's dead man's bones. And that's how Jesus described Pharisees. Man, you look good, you smell good, you present well, but you are full of filth, decay, you're, you're stained, you're blemished. <coughs> He says, you worry about washing the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup is full of dirt. But that's not true of Jesus. He's pure. That's why he could be our sin substitute. That's why he could walk into the Holy of Holies and present himself as the sin substitute for you and I. He's the perfect sacrifice. He's the perfect lamb of God. That's how John described him. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist knew this about Jesus and he declared it to everyone around him. He is the sinless, unblemished, stainless, undefiled lamb of God. If not, he can't die for our sins. No other priest could do that. It's interesting that when we studied Exodus, there's a moment when Moses declares that I'm gonna go to the, to the mountaintop again and I'm gonna go to God and I'm gonna intercede for you sinful Israelites. This is after the golden calf incident. 
and he really challenges God, take me. I'll give my life on their behalf. And God goes, that's not how this works. You can't die for them because you're sinful too. See, no other priest, no other leader could ever do what Jesus Christ did. I love what Peter says. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He is completely sinless, pure, undefiled. But he's also separated from sinners. This is an interesting phrase. What does he mean by this? I thought he came to redeem sinners. Well, he did. But it means that he's different from us. He's undefiled. He's perfectly pure. When Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners, their sin didn't rub off on him. You know, there, there are many of us who feel like um, we, we need to hang out with sinners and, and we need to, so that we can share the gospel. And I fully agree with that. Here's the problem. Some of us are not equipped for that. Some of us are too easily tempted by the sinners we're there to redeem because we still have a problem with the sins that they do and we're attracted to those sins. Now, if you're strong enough and you're far enough in your faith where you can do that, great, have at it. But see, we can become contaminated way too easily by hanging out with sinners, by hanging out with the buddies we used to hang out with and drink with and party with. And we need to be really careful. Jesus didn't have to worry about that. Jesus could hang out with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners of all kind and not be tempted because he was not able to sin. See, he's different. Looks like us, made like us. He became a man like us, but he was distinctively different from us because Jesus Christ did not, could not, would not sin. He could be tempted, but without sin, the scriptures tell us. So made in our likeness, but he didn't have our sin nature. Again, could you say this about any other high priest? No, no. And again, who's he writing to? He's writing to Jews. He's writing to Jews who for centuries and for their lifetimes have put their hope and trust in a man called the high priest who is anything but any of these things. He couldn't, he couldn't measure up to any of these attributes. I love this from Richard Phillips. He says, he, Jesus, is in a different category from sinful man because he overcame temptation and emerged sinless. If we need Jesus to represent us because we are sinners, then it's vital that he be without sin, separated from sinners. No other high priest, no other man, Moses, Abraham, David, Solomon, could this be set up? They were separated from sinners. No, they were sinners. Doesn't mean they didn't have righteous moments. Doesn't mean that they weren't called by God, a friend of God, chosen of God, a man after God's own heart, but they still were not separated from sinners. Only Jesus Christ could that be set up. Well, finally, it says he's exalted above the heavens, elevated, raised up. He's somewhere that no other man has ever gone before. And this is another way in which he's separated different from you and I and different from earthly human high priests. It says in, in this book over and over again that he's seated in the presence of God Almighty. He's, 
He's seated on a throne in heaven. He's not here. He's, he's ascended. And this is part of the problem that's causing these people to think about going backwards rather than forwards is, I don't know where he is. I've never seen him. I've never touched him. I've never talked to him. He, he lived, he died, he rose again. He ascended on high. He's supposedly in heaven, but the Messiah was supposed to set up his kingdom on earth, not heaven. Where is he? But see, part of this is that he's not done yet. That's why chapter 13, he says, I'm exhorting you. Chapter two, about the future. Don't forget about the future. See, no other high priest is sitting at the right hand of God in heaven. It's only Jesus. And if you think about it, if you want somebody to intercede for you, you want them to be where God is. See, when this letter is written, when this sermon was preached and put in writing and disseminated to all these congregations all over the Gentile world, the temple was still in existence. It would be destroyed by the Romans in AD 70, but it's still in existence, but it won't be long before it's gone. Jesus even told his disciples, that structure that you think is so glorious and beautiful and wonderful won't be here long because he's come to replace that place. There is no temple right now. That means there's no sacrifices being made. There's no holy of holies. There's no earthly tabernacle temple for a priest to go into to offer atonement for the sins of the people because it's been replaced by something better, someone better, this high priest. He's the perfect high priest who offers the only acceptable sacrifice. And again, we read this and go, okay, yeah, well, that's great, wonderful. But to these Jews, this is like a brick to the forehead. They're, they're going, wait a minute. They're still Jews. They still believe in the old covenant. They still believe that the temple is important. They still believe that all those laws need to be kept and adhered to. They still believe that the high priest plays a, a, plays a high role in their whole religion. And he's saying, no, 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 something better has come. Someone better has come. And so don't go back. Don't go back to that. See, I love Philippians. Philippians 2 is my favorite passage in the Bible. And I love what it says about Jesus. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, as a result, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, what? Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Has this happened yet? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to go, no, I don't think this has happened yet. Everybody on earth is not bowing down and confessing Jesus Christ is Lord, but the day is coming when they will. If you were here years ago when we did the book of Revelation, the whole book of Revelation paints the picture of this moment. But this is why he died. This is why he came. This is why he died. This is why he rose again. This is why he sits at the right hand of the Father. And one day he's coming back to culminate this whole plan. That's what the author is trying to get these people to understand, remember, and put their hope in. Not in the past. Don't hope in the past. Hope in the future. Hope in what's to come. The promises of God. The promises of God have not yet been fully fulfilled. So don't go backwards, go forwards. So he says, we have such a high priest. If this is the requirement for priesthood, guess what? You've got him. He's come. He's Jesus Christ. He's the Messiah who is seated at the right hand of the throne 
of the majesty in heaven. He is right where he's supposed to be and he's right where he can do you the most good. See, what they want is the Messiah to be in their presence on a throne in Jerusalem, having conquered the the Romans and putting them back on the map politically, economically. and, And this guy's saying, no, no, no. You want Jesus to be right where he is because until it's the right time, he can't come, won't come, because he's going to do the will of God, because he's the devoted high priest. He will not come until it's time. And when he comes, all that you've been expecting, all that you've hoped for will take place, but on his terms and according to his timing. But it says he's a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. See, what he's going to do now is he's going to transition from earth to glory. He's going to transition from temporal to the eternal. It's not unlike what John does in the book of Revelation, where he's given all these visions of what it looks like where God is. It's the same thing here, but he's going to do it in a literary style. He's going to say, listen, guys, get your eyes off of earth. Get your eyes off of Jerusalem. Get your eyes off of the idea of a a Messiah who's going to come and rule and reign on David's throne to make your little world what you want it to be. And remember that this guy is in a different place. This better high priest is in a better place doing a better thing on your behalf. He ministers in the holy places in the true tent, the true tabernacle where God is. He's not in Jerusalem. You know, it's interesting that in the, in the scriptures we have in the gospels, Jesus going to Jerusalem regularly, but he never went into the Holy of Holies. Yet we're told here he's, he's the high priest. He's the better high priest, but he never went in to the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the glory of God was said to have dwelled above the mercy seat. He never went in there. He wasn't allowed to go in there. Why? Because he wasn't a Levitical priest. He could have without fear of death because he's the son of God. He is the anointed. He's the Messiah. But he didn't because that tabernacle, that temple really didn't matter at that point because the Messiah had come. See, there's a different place. There's a different holy place. And I'll I'll admit to you guys, I'm still trying to get my head around this whole idea. And, And the commentaries don't help. The commentaries actually make it harder, more difficult, more confusing, because there are a lot of different opinions about what this is talking about. I'm gonna take it at face value that what he's telling us is that there is a place, there is a tabernacle, there is a structure of some kind, some form in a place called heaven where God sits on a literal throne. I'm just gonna take it at face value that that, that's what this is all about. And this is where Jesus Christ is right now. Don't know what it looks like, don't know how it's structured, don't know what it's made of, but I do believe that it's real and that one day it's gonna come to earth in its real form to a real place and it will exist here for eternity. And we'll look at that in a second. Nobody else has ever gone there. No priest has ever gone into that place and sat on the throne next to God, but Jesus did. See, what he's telling us and he's telling these Jews is that you're obsessed with the literal tabernacle temple in Jerusalem and you want the this guy to show up, this Messiah you've been waiting for to show up and set up his throne on earth. But 
Jesus Christ has entered into a much better tabernacle and he's gone into the literal holy of holies. And it's far better than anything down on earth. See, in AD 70, that place, that temple will be destroyed and it will remain destroyed for centuries until the Israelites come back from captivity in Babylon and they will build another temple, which will be just a shadow of the former temple. Years years later, Herod will then refurbish that temple and, and make it better, but it will never match the former glory of the first temple. But the sad thing is that temple in all its glory that, te- that Solomon built can't even remotely compete with this, this place where Jesus went. He ministers in that place, in the Holy of Holies, where God sits on the mercy seat and he's offered himself as the perfect sinless sacrifice. And again, we, we can get headaches reading this and going, oh, I don't get this. I don't know what, what's this got to do with me? Well, it has everything to do with you because the New Testament, the new covenant, the, the second half of the book that we tend to like better than the old half, they're not two, two halves, they're, they're a whole. And so everything we see in the Old Testament is pointing to this, this fact that Jesus Christ has accomplished something. He has come, he's died, he's resurrected, he's entered into the Holy of Holies, he's passed through the veil into God's presence, and there he has atoned for all men's sins for all time. Has any other high priest ever accomplished that? No. If they were to rebuild the temple today and reinstitute the Levitical system and they elected a high priest to go into the temple and offer sacrifices on their behalf, would he ever accomplish this? No. And yet these people are thinking about going back and expecting a human high priest to do what only the great high priest, the true high priest, could do. No other priest had ever done this before. See, he makes it clear in verse three, every high priest, speaking of earthly high priests, are appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest, Jesus, to also offer something. If you're going to offer sacrifices, you got to have something to sacrifice. And what he sacrificed was himself, a far greater sacrifice, a, a, a truly pure, sinless sacrifice. And I love what he says in verse four. Now, if he, Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Why? Because he's from the tribe of Judah, not Levite. He's not qualified, according to the law, to be a priest. But it says, if he were, were not a priest at all, there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, those human high priests. Well, he also has to offer something not according to the law, but according to the will of God, the Father. They served as what? A copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. The whole tabernacle structure, the whole temple structure, the whole sacrificial system was pointing to something greater to come. See, on earth, he wasn't considered a priest. He wouldn't have been allowed to go into the temple. He would have been arrested. He probably would have been executed had he tried. But he's still the priest. And he goes and has gone into the Holy of Holies in the real tabernacle that is in heaven and done what no other priest has ever done before. Those things were just a copy, a shadow, an image of greater things to come. And it's important that we realize because it's important for these Jews 
who are thinking about going back to the system to realize that everything about that system was flawed. It, it, was, it was flawed. Doesn't mean it was broken, doesn't mean it wasn't holy, but there was something about it that was never going to work. It was just a facsimile, a model of pick pointing to the greater thing to come. See, in that system, in the, the old tabernacle, in the temple, in Jerusalem, everything basically was limited. Everything had rules attached to it. And if you didn't keep those rules, it could end up in death. I know you, you probably aren't a big fan of the book of Leviticus, but if you really want to understand just how difficult it was to keep the law, go read the book of Leviticus. And it will make you so grateful that we don't live under the law anymore. Listen to what it says. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, the high priest, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that's on the ark. In other words, don't come into God's presence at any time other than the appointed time so that he may not die. So what's that tell me? That high priest, no matter what his clothes looked like, no matter how many times he purified himself, no matter how many sacrifices he offered, if he walked in on the wrong day, not the day of atonement, he would die. Why? Because God's in there. Think about that. God said, I have come to dwell among you. I will hover over the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, inside the Holy of Holies, but your most holy high priest can only come into my presence once a year. And if he tries at any other time, I will kill him. And if his sons try, if anybody else tries, if any other priest tries to come into my presence, he will die. See, that's some pretty serious rules, regulations that have to be maintained. And that's all attached to that old system. <clears throat> there were precautions that God put into place because you can't just waltz into God's presence. You, you just can't blow the doors past and go through the veil and walk in and go, hey, God, it's me. I'm here to talk to you. I got something for you. Hey, I need you to do something for me. No Jew could do that, including the high priest, without fear of death. Here's what he had to do, according to Leviticus, on the day of atonement, once a year, when he could go into God's presence, he had to bathe his body in water, ceremonial purification. He had to put on the holy garments that God had designed he had to present the bull as an offering for himself. He had to make a sacrifice for his own sins. Then he had to make atonement for himself and his household. This is before he could go into the Holy of Holies and offer atonement for the sins of the people. And if he didn't do these things, if he left one out, well, I don't want to change clothes because I'm going to go back and work in the yard. So I'm just going to keep my work clothes on. Who cares? Well, God cares. He'd have killed you. All of it had to be done. See, all of this was about doing things the way God calls them to be done because God is holy and he expects his people to be holy. He says, for Moses, when he was about to erect that tabernacle, the very first time that God gave him the designs for, God told Moses, and we saw this when we studied the book of Exodus, I'm gonna give you the design. I'm gonna give you all the details. I'm even gonna give you a 3D view of what it should look like. He says, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. When Moses went onto the top of the mountain and he got the design for the tabernacle, God showed him the heavenly tabernacle. That's why I believe it's a real place. 
It has real substance. And he saw it. And it became kind of the schematic for what he built on earth. But that thing he built on earth, that tent, that glorified tent, was a pattern of, a model of, a poor representation of the greater thing to come, that thing that's up in heaven, that place where God sits and Jesus Christ sits with him. Everything was a pattern and it was a really poor pattern. Think about it. If you had to see, or if, if you saw the Taj Mahal, pick, pick your glorious structure, human structure, and then you came home and tried to build it in your backyard, whatever you built, I don't care how great a builder you are, would be a poor facsimile of that building. That's what Moses and the people of Israel tried to do is build something that looked like that. I don't know what that looked like, but whatever he built was a poor facsimile. It was earthly, temporal, stained by sin because it was built by sinful men. And those priests were to promote and protect that place, that earthly tabernacle. Keep it pure, keep it keep it where God could come and dwell because that's God's house and God needs to dwell there. And their job was to make sure that it was pure so that God could dwell there. Well, how did they do with that? How successful were they? The day after they built the tabernacle for the first time and dedicated it, here's what happened. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, the high priest, each took a censer and put fire in it, laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. This is the day after the inaugural opening of the tabernacle that they're supposed to keep holy. These are the two priestly sons of the high priest. This is how good it's going. Day one. And it goes downhill from there. They, they offer strange fire. It basically, they did something God didn't tell them to do. And I can only imagine Nadab and Abihu going, you know, I, I know what we're supposed to do, but I want to do this. I want to do this for God. I think they were probably well-intentioned, but they offered something God didn't ordain and God took them out. Just killed them right on the spot. Things have not gotten off to a good start. Well, you fast forward and there's another high priest, a guy named Eli that comes along and he's also got a couple of sons. This seems to be a pattern, right? He's a priest during the period of the judges and he's got a son named Hophni and Phinehas. That's his first problem is coming up with names. <laughs> These names are horrible. I'm not even sure what they mean. I don't really care, but they're priests because they're sons of the high priest. And it says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. That's a pretty sad indictment, right? That'd be like if somebody came up to me, you know, you're a worthless man and you don't even know Jesus. That sad thing is that could be said of some pastors around this city, that there are people who get up the pulpit every week who probably are worthless men because they don't know Jesus. But this is being spoken of by two priests who are supposed to be serving in the tabernacle and keeping it pure. So what happens? Well, they, they repeatedly violate God's laws concerning the tabernacle. You can go back and read the story. They sacrificed meat that God didn't ordain. Same thing the other two did. 
They do things their way rather than God's way. And here's the kicker. They had sex with the women who stood at the door of the tabernacle to care for it. We're not really sure what their role was, but these men who are priests of God Almighty would regularly have sex with them. So they've turned the tabernacle of God into a bordello for their own benefit. And then their father rebukes them and they basically go, well, forget you. We're gonna do what we wanna do, but they can't get away from God's wrath. Here's what happens. This shall, and this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I'm gonna wipe them out. I'm gonna kill them. Well, fast forward again, all the way to the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi. This is way along the timeline of the people of Israel. And here we again have, here's what's happened to the priesthood of Israel. The Lord of heaven's army says to the priests, and this is kind of a little long read here, but I need you to track with me because it, it shows you why we needed a better high priest. The Lord of heaven's army says to the priest, a son honors his father and a servant respects his master. If I'm your father and master, where are the honor and respect I deserve? This is God speaking to the priests. You have shown contempt for my name, but you ask, how have we ever shown contempt for your name? You have shown contempt by offering defiled sacrifices on my altar. Then you ask, how have we offered defiled sacrifices? You defile them by saying the altar of the Lord deserves no respect. Now think about this. This is pretty dangerous to, to offer sacrifices that are defiled, which means they're not acceptable, but you think it's okay because it doesn't matter. When you give blind animals as sacrifices, isn't that wrong? And isn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? What kind of animals were they, they'd offer? Undefiled, without blemish. And yet they're offering blind animals, crippled animals, diseased animals. Try giving gifts like that to your governor and see how pleased he is, says the Lord. You couldn't carry that off with your governor. You couldn't do that with a king. You couldn't do that with anybody else, but you're doing it with me. He says, go ahead, beg God to be merciful to you. But when you bring that kind of offering, why should he show you any favor at all? Asked the Lord of heaven's armies. How I wish one of you would shut the temple door so that these worthless sacrifices could not be offered. I am not pleased with you. You never want to hear that from God Almighty, especially as a priest. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Isn't it interesting that he keeps referring to himself as the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies. That's not how you want to interact with your God. He's not the Lord of peace, the Lord of righteousness. He's not the Lord of mercy. He's the Lord of heaven's armies. I am not pleased with you and I will not accept your offerings. I'd rather shut the doors altogether. I'd rather just shut the whole system down because what you're doing is unacceptable. It's worthless. See, we've, we've gone from the inauguration of the tabernacle all the way to the last, chap, the last book in the Old Testament and it's gone downhill. And it's because of these poor performing priests, this priesthood that these Jewish Christians are thinking about going back to. Those priests were lousy mediators. See, God's saying, I'd rather shut the door to the temple than allow these morons to keep doing what they're doing. And if he shuts the door to the temple, what does that mean for the people of Israel? No more atonement for sin, no more forgiveness, no more anything. But see, 
your mediators are hypocritical. They're unreliable. They can't be trusted. They offer sacrifices that are unacceptable to me. They treat me with contempt. Their ministry is undesirable. And everything they do is objectionable to God. And yet you want to go back to that. And see, guys, whoever the high priest is at this point is in the first century AD when this letter is written, whether it's Caiaphas, Ananias, I don't know who he is, but I can guarantee he's not really very good. Ananias and Caiaphas are the two that took Jesus to trial before Pilate and demanded his execution. They're the ones who are persecuting the church. It hasn't gotten any better. And God says, I've sent you a better high priest. I've sent you, sent you someone, some, someone who can do for you that what these men could never do, that that system could never do. Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant as the old, as the covenant he mediates is better. In these next verses, you're going to see him comparing the old and the new over and over again. He says that first covenant was was not faultless. That old way of doing things had faults, flaws inherent in it. And this is huge. It means it was not free from fault or defect. That old covenant that you want to go back to was not what it appears to be. He's not saying it's not good. He's not saying it's unholy. He's saying it's got flaws and he's gonna make the flaws very clear. He's not saying that what he instituted had defects. The defects came from the sinful priests and the sinful people, not God's law. See, don't misconstrue. Don't say that, well, the old was bad and the new is good. No, The old was good and holy and righteous. That's what Romans tells us. The law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. The problem is not with the law, the old covenant. The problem is with us. See, the law did what it was supposed to do. What was it supposed to do? Show people their sin. And over and over again, whether you were the high priest, you had to be cleansed from sin before you could go in. It was always doing what it intended to do, but it could never fully redeem from sin. The law was given to show people their sins, and it was given alongside the promise. The law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. What what are these passages pointing to? Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the high priest, the sinless sacrifice, the unblemished lamb of God, the one who is standing before God Almighty in the throne of heaven right now, interceding for you and me. He is the child, the promised one. See, I love what Paul says to the Romans, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, his own flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's what Jesus Christ did. And then he he takes us into this next section. He says, for he finds fault with them. Fault with who? Fault with the people. The people could never pull this off. You and I are the biggest problem we have. It's not the gospel. It's not salvation. It's us. Richard Phillips says, the problem with the old covenant was the infidelity of the people. Read the Old Testament and you will find a continuous history of idolatry and unfaithfulness over and over and over again, despite the temple, despite the tabernacle, despite the high priests and all the sacrificial system. 
Yet God says, I've got something new. I have something better. And that's what this author is trying to tell these people. Don't turn your back on what is better. And once again, he dips back into the Old Testament and he quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31, a passage that was written centuries earlier to encourage the people of Israel, a rebellious people, an unfaithful people to don't forget that your God is faithful to you in spite of you. See, he says, behold, days are coming. Notice the emphasis on future. Now he's using an Old Testament passage to make a point in the now, but it's still pointing to the future. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. Notice the difference between the new and the old. A new thing is coming, a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made, what covenant? The old covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. What covenant? The old covenant. I made a covenant with them. I made an agreement with them. I gave them promises, but they didn't keep the covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant. What covenant? The new covenant. That new one, the better one to come that I will make with the house of Israel. Notice that he's brought them together. They're no longer divided. There's a day coming with when the divided kingdom will be restored. And in those days, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds. I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Has this happened? No, not for these people. It's not happened yet, but he's gonna go on and they shall not teach each other one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. See, this is a promise made in Jeremiah 31 to the people of Israel while they were sinful. And he's telling them something great has happened and it's partially been fulfilled. How? In the lives of these Jews to whom the author's writing. See, they have placed their faith in the Messiah and they have believed in him and they have had their hearts transformed. They, they have experienced heart hearts transformed by the Holy Spirit. They have enjoyed a restored relationship with God. They have developed an intimate relationship with God, all because of what Jesus Christ did. And guess what? They have received full forgiveness of their sins, and yet they're thinking about going back. And he's saying, don't, don't. Because it's not fully been fulfilled. It's full, fulfilled in part, but not in full. There's more to come. That's the whole point of this book, guys. Focus on the future. It will be fulfilled. This is the coolest part. Verse eight, behold, the days are coming when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will finish what I began. And in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Don't go back to the old. It's not that it's bad. It's that it was, it was incomplete. It was impartial and the new has come. The new covenant is better than the old. So I'll close with these verses and I need you to think about them in a different, a different way. Second Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We think that has to do with us. My, my new life has come. I've got a new heart. I've got a, a, new, a new way of living. I've got new capacities. No, this is talking about the new being the new covenant and the fulfillment of it in full. 
The new has come, but it's not yet here. And that's why in Revelation we see, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And then he goes on, he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The new has come. See, when this happens, and I believe it will happen, that new Jerusalem will have a new tabernacle built by God in which Jesus Christ and he sit above the mercy seat and it will come to dwell with us. This is the hope we keep our eyes on. This is the hope they needed to keep their eyes on. God is not yet done. So here's your first question. Why should we thank God that we don't have a priest like Nadab, Abihu, Hophni, and Phinehas? Why should we be grateful that we don't have to go through men to have a right relationship with God? See, we have a better high priest. Verse six speaks of a better covenant enacted on a better promise. How does Revelation 21, two through four, which we just looked at, prove that the promise is truly better? Something greater is coming. And that is what we hope in. Finally, why is it vital that we play the long game when it comes to the promises of God? You don't get them all here. They're not gonna come today. They're not gonna come tomorrow necessarily, but we hope for the long game that God will finish what he began. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for your word. And I pray that as we talk around these tables, that you would help us to be open and honest that yes, we wrestle with these concepts. They're difficult. They're hard to get your head around. But Father, we can hope in your promises, whether we understand them fully. That's not the point. It's that we trust you completely, that you will do what you said you will do, that we can have hope for the future because you are a promise-keeping God. Lord, I love these men. I thank you for their faithfulness and their willingness to study and learn and grow. And I pray that we would grow together as brothers in Christ as we talk. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name, amen.